mining industry. Welcome to episode number 158 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor for the Northern Miner, and I also help out with social media. John Felderhoff, the chief geologist behind Preax Minerals, the infamous company in the 1990s that went bankrupt and lost $3 billion of shareholder value as a result of a salting scandal. In other words, gold was salted onto drill core, or however that worked, into the samples. John Felderhoff has passed away in the Philippines, and he is one of those sort of central names to that whole scandal. He was taken to court and in 2007 was acquitted. He was accused of selling stock when they had information that things might not have been right. He always maintained his innocence, and he was let off. The chief Executive officer David Walsh died in 1998, so only a year after the company Briex went bankrupt in 1997. David Walsh died in June 1998 at age 52 in the Bahamas of an apparent brain aneurysm. And I think probably most, for lack of a better word, sensationalistic of all was the death of geologist Michael de Guzman, who was blamed for the salting of the gold core samples and He died from a fall from a helicopter in the Indonesian jungle. And this has always been a mystery as to, did he fall? Did he jump? Or was he pushed? This was one of the big mining stories of the 90s. And as far as I understand, the whole 43-101 process was developed in response to Briex. The reputation of the mining industry suffered enormously from that, particularly the juniors. I mean, in reality, though, 10 years later, those juniors started to just rocket launch. So memories are short in this world. But uh, yeah, so Felderhoff has passed away in the Philippines. We've put a special section at the bottom of our website. You'll see a special focus on Briex. It's right at the bottom. And we put uh, seven or eight stories just on Felderhoff, some recent stuff. But if you do a search on Briex or if you click on the tag Briex in one of those articles, you're going to find dozens of stories. So I highly recommend The Life After Briex Story by Trish Saywell that was written a few years ago. And Trish went all the way to the Philippines where Felderhoff was living with his wife and their kids It was quite the story. I think we had that on a Christmas issue or something, and it was just quite the postscript. Let's just put it that way. You know, sometimes you wonder what happens afterwards. Well, that's what happened. And with that, we have a very special show for you today. Again, we're returning to the Progressive Mind Forum, and we have an excellent panel on ESG, which is Environmental, Social, and Governance. This is becoming a very hot topic. It's always been around, but now it's front and center. As one of the people in this panel says, even pension funds are now putting out ESG measures on companies that they invest in. So ignore ESG at your own peril in this environment. This is a cutting-edge discussion, and yeah, so... It's about half an hour. It's moderated by Trish Saywell, and so that's coming up. And also we have some web stories. We have metal prices. You know, lots going on in the world these days with Latin America. I mean, you have massive protests in Chile. Bolivia is getting no attention, but Bolivia, there are huge protests. Uh, I saw some video of a panorama of the cityscape, and you can just hear the audio 
of people clanging their pots and pans. So it, there's a lot going on. We had the election in Argentina. Fernandez, the uh, left-leaning candidate, did in fact win, although Macri performed better than expected. So it's amazing what happens in a week. To keep track of some of these developments, you can find us online at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And turning to the website, lithium is back in the news, and it looks like Russia's state nuclear group Rosatom wants to get involved in lithium. The title of the story, which is our main headline right now, is Wealth Minerals and Rosatom Partner Up in Chile. And yeah, it says here, Russia's state nuclear group Rosatom and Canada's Wealth Minerals are working towards a partnership at the Juniors Atacama Lithium Project in northern Chile. The two companies signed a Memorandum of Understanding, under which Rosatom, through its subsidiary Uranium One Group, can earn up to a 51% stake in the project, along with the right to purchase 100% of its offtake. The MOU would give Wealth Minerals access to Rosatom's technology, which dispenses with the massive solar evaporation ponds that are currently used to extract lithium from the brine in high-altitude salars. Rosatom's sorption technology, by contrast, employs a reusable catalyst material that attracts the lithium salt without using any type of heat in the process. You might remember the interview we did with Martin Stephen about three or four weeks ago, and... uh, He was from Rock Tech Lithium, and he mentioned how some of this extraction of lithium from brine can be damaging to the environment. It sounds here that Wealth Minerals believes that Rosatom's technology will be more environmentally friendly. It says here the catalyst material adheres itself to the lithium and can then be effectively washed off and reused. The remaining water, the brine without the lithium, is then pumped back into the salar. Quote, solar evaporation requires enormous ponds to be bulldozed and left in place. They're huge. You can see them from outer space, says Tim McCutcheon, Wealth Minerals president. Quote, you're in the driest part of the planet and you're evaporating water into the atmosphere. This technology ensures that the water table in the salar doesn't fall. It's a pretty major problem as far as I understand. Like This is why Chile has been so slow on the regulatory front to address the lack of development of lithium in the country because they have major water issues. So it's an interesting situation that's going on over there because if if you remember that other article we had by Tom Asaparty, it was about how Australia was moving past Chile in the lithium production space with their hard rock lithium extraction. So here we have uh, what looks like a potential solution to this brine lithium extraction. Just a final quote. It's really a breakthrough. This is the president, uh, Tim McCletchen. It's really a breakthrough to the problem of recovering lithium in an ecologically friendly way and being competitive in terms of costs. The trick here is their catalyst material, which by the way it has been formed can perform the recovery process without introducing heat. Interesting development there. On several fronts, I mean, the fact that Russia has this technology, that their state nuclear group Rosatom is getting involved in lithium, shows they're pretty serious with the memorandum of understanding saying they can earn up to a 51% stake in the project and the right to purchase 100% of its offtake. So Russia 
makes a little side move. I mean, this is the sort of headline that you don't really see in the main newspapers because it's almost, in a weird way, kind of too small of a story. But it's a pretty interesting move, isn't it? So moving on, we also have Premier and Nevada Gold Mines. Uh, they're beginning production at their El Nino project in Nevada's Carlin Trend. And you might remember Nevada Gold Mines is a joint venture between Newmont Gold Corp and Barrick Gold. You may remember the huge, uh, I think it was during the last PDAC, when Barrick was trying to acquire Newmont. And that was really the talk of the convention. Anyways, they eventually made amends and decided to partner up with their Nevada projects. And Premier Gold Mines is also involved. They own 40% of this El Nino gold mine. And so they have just started commercial production. And it says here that it's ahead of schedule and on budget. And the high-grade ore is being processed at the Gold Strike facility, which is eight kilometers south of the El Nino mine. And another gold story, we have Victoria Gold. Looks like they are getting ready to go into production at their Eagle project in the Yukon. It says here, these are exciting days for Victoria Gold as the company transitions its flagship Eagle open pit gold project in the Yukon from development into production. At the end of September, the company had mined 1.7 million tons of ore and stacked 1.1 million tons of crushed material on the heap leach pad, pouring its first gold on September 17th. And John McConnell, Victoria Gold's president and CEO, said in an interview with the Northern Miner, quote, after 10 years of blood, sweat, and tears, it feels pretty good. And he continued that he is guiding people for the second quarter of 2020 in terms of commercial production, based on the feasibility study, Eagle is expected to produce 200,000 ounces of gold per year for 10 years, based on current reserves. Operating costs are expected at $10.54 per ton of ore leached, or $700.50 per ounce all-in sustaining, which is quite low. Uh, however, there is a 5% royalty to a Cisco Gold royalties, so that's pretty significant. It is a low-cost project, but Osisco Gold is taking a big piece of this. As the first gold pour was being announced, McConnell commented, Looking back, this is the culmination of many years of dedication and hard work by numerous stakeholders. Looking forward, this first gold pour is expected to be swiftly followed by positive cash flow, and we intend to grow production and resulting cash flow into the future. Looks like everything is humming along smoothly for Victoria Gold at Eagle in the Yukon. And finally, we have a very special story. Uh, the Northern Miner Awards Scholarship to Mining Engineer Student, and that Mining Engineer Student is Tyler Sieben, and he won $5,000. Uh, for his essay. This is a part of the Young Mining Professionals and YMP, and they're on Twitter as well. I, I think they're under at YMP Toronto, and they have another chapters in Sudbury and in London. So if you're a student in mining, you, might, you should definitely get linked up with the Young Mining Professionals. They get great speakers, okay? Now, back to this scholarship. So Young Mining Professionals is a registered charity that donates 100% of its receipts to students, and they have awarded 10 scholarships this year, ranging from $1,000 to $10,000 to students who are pursuing a career in mining and are enrolled in mining-related programs 
from 2019 to 2020. And this year's winner is Tyler Sieben, a student in his final year of mining engineering at the University of Alberta. The award is granted to a student with the best vision for the future, and the winner's essay, which outlines the opportunities and challenges of the mining industry we'll face over the next 50 years, is published in the newspaper and also on the website. Uh, Tyler contributes to the mining community through volunteer roles with the University of Alberta Mining Club, the Mining Industry Advisory Committee, and the Canadian Mining Games. His first jobs in industry were in Alberta, where he operated ultra-class haul trucks at Syncrude's Mildred Lake Mine, and more recently provided engineering support to projects at Suncor's Millennium Mine, including survey volume reconciliation, technical design of mine structures, and providing technical support for a drone survey program. We have a little quote here from Tyler. He says, quote, mining is hard, but that's why I chose to make a career out of it. While others may view mining with uncertainty, I see it as an industry full of opportunity. I'm excited to utilize cutting edge technology to tackle some of the world's most complex deposits to provide the resources required for society to continue to flourish. While considering shareholders and community members, I aim to leave a lasting positive impression on the projects I'm involved with throughout my career. Well, you can't ask for much more from a student on mining. I mean, this guy sounds like he should be running a mining company or that he will be, we'll all be working for Tyler Sieben soon enough. So Tyler sounds like he is ready to tackle any of the issues of this industry. He sounds like uh, very impressive. And so if you want to read his essay... Simply go to northernminer.com, and if you scroll down about halfway down the homepage, you will see the Northern Miner Award Scholarship to Mining Engineering Student with Tyler Sieben there. Congratulations to Tyler. It's a really interesting essay, and uh, I think my one favorite quote out of it, I really let you guys go to the website and check it out, but I thought my favorite line in there was halfway through, living in a limitless world with limited resources... The ability to mine more efficiently and safely is a welcome prospect for environmentalists and miners alike. And I'll just give you a little teaser, but not everyone shares this enthusiasm. So off we go. So yes, that's available on the northernminer.com. And a nice, great picture of Tyler on a mine site. So that's all for the website. Coming up next, metal prices. Turning to metal prices, uh, we'd like to thank our friends at Infomine.com who provide us with these metal prices. And if you ever want to see them for yourself, just do a search on Infomine and metal prices and you will see the first result in Google. It's very useful because they have all sorts of obscure metals. I say like about a third of the metals they have available here. I mean, they have rhodium, ruthenium, they have iridium. So it's a great service. Here we are on October 29th. Gold is at $1,493.94. This is about $6 higher than last week. And so it continues to hover below $1,500. So precious metals definitely feel like they're taking a bit of a break. Silver as well is at $17.80. That's $0.20 cents higher than last week. Silver also feels to be taking a bit of a break from the big sort of push that we saw in August. 
Platinum is a little bit higher at $918.15. Last week was at $889.91. So it's almost $30 higher on Platinum. Palladium continues to go higher at $1,797.63. That is $36 higher than last week's quote of $1,761.16. Palladium is still the star, remains the star, and let's see how far this goes. I mean, it's, uh, you know, 10 years ago, palladium was the third most expensive precious metal behind uh, gold and platinum. Platinum was the most expensive, and then it was gold, and then it was palladium. I remember it being at, like, what seemed like 600 bucks or something. Now it's at 1787 So lots going on with palladium there. Let's see what happens next. And for our industrial metals, we have... October 25th quote of copper is at $2.67. That's four cents higher than last week's quote. Aluminum remains at 78 cents. That's three weeks in a row. It's at 78 cents. The week before that, it was 77, and then it was 78. So aluminum is just staying steady. Lead is at $1.02, and that's two cents higher than last week. And it's been slowly sort of creeping up. When we first started paying attention to metal prices about two months ago, it was at 92 cents, so it's a good 10% higher. A nickel is at $7.66, and that is 19 cents higher than last week's $7.47, but not quite the same sort of push we saw, say, three or four weeks ago, five weeks ago, when it was about $8.15. Tin is at $7.53. That's 12 cents lower than last week at $7.65. Cobalt remains even at $16.10. So after that big push off the bottom, cobalt has plateaued. It's basically been staying in the same range for almost a month now. And zinc continues to creep up. It's at $1.15. It's two cents higher than last week's $1.13. Zinc has sort of crept up from basically $1.05 a couple of months ago. Each you know, week, it seems to be up a couple of cents. So that's also one to pay attention to. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, the ESG panel from the Northern Miners third annual Progressive Mine Forum in Toronto. And this features Culver Singh Gill, DPI Mining Associate Director. The panel also includes Claudia Mueller from Global Mining Management and Associate Director at the Schulich School of Business. Sam Pazuki. Oceana Gold Vice President of Investor Relations, Miranda Wurstiak, Optimize Group Vice President of Corporate Advisory Services, Raziel Zisman, Whittle Consulting Co-Founder and Partner, and the panel is moderated by the Northern Miners Acting Editor-in-Chief, Trish Saywell, and it's a really cutting-edge discussion. This is a must-listen, just like our last one with George Hemingway was a must-listen. This is a Great follow-up, and they referenced George's speech in there. So everybody did a really nice job there. So without further ado, Anthony Vaccaro, group publisher of the Northern Miner, is going to introduce everyone, and we'll see you on the other side. Keeping on the theme of trust, which George so expertly guided us into, 
One of the three most important letters for any mining companies today, and probably more so, I will say definitely more so into the future, are ESG, environmental, social, and governance. We're now at a point where in 2018, for the first time ever in Canada, more than 50% of assets under management in Canada had to pass through some sort of responsibility filter. So this is an absolutely crucial issue, and we've assembled a great panel of experts here to help guide companies through what are going to be the key issues to manage ESG and make sure that your company isn't dragging behind but is actually grabbing the bull by the horns. So to introduce the panel and to guide this conversation, honored to introduce Trish Saywell. Trish has been one of the top mining reporters for over the last 10 years with the Northern Miner. She recently took the role as acting editor-in-chief and uh, has done a fantastic job also spearheading our TNM Leaders video segment, which if anyone hasn't seen here, I encourage you to go to our website and check that out. That's where we're interviewing top CEOs in the industry. And yeah, that's enough for me. I'll pass it over to Trish. Well, it's a great panel to follow on George's excellent presentation earlier, all about trust. Environmental, social, and governance, or ESG criteria, are a set of standards for companies' operations that socially conscious investors use to screen potential investments. Environmental criteria obviously consider how a company performs as a steward of nature. Social criteria examine how a company manages relationships with the communities in which they operate, their suppliers and employees, and governance deals with a company's leadership, executive pay, audits, internal controls, and shareholder rights. It's a complex field that is evolving rapidly, and in the mining industry, we see reminders of its importance every single day, from repeated tailings dam disasters in Brazil, to anti-mining processes in countries like Ecuador, to recent blockades at Newmont Gold Corp's Penasquito Mine in Mexico, for example, or MMG's Las Bambas Copper Mine in Peru. Luckily, we have a very experienced panel of experts here today who can weigh in on some of these issues and what more can and should be done to get ESG right. On my immediate left is Culver Singh Gill. He is the Associate Director of the Development Partner Institute, where his focus is on innovation, technology, and sustainability. To his left is Claudia Mueller. She is the Associate Director of Global Mining Management at the Schulich School of Business. Next to Claudia is Sam Pazuki. He is the Vice President of Investor Relations at Oceana Gold. Miranda Wurstiak is Vice President of Corporate Advisory Services at the Optimize Group, a project engineering firm, and prior to that spent 25 years in the investment banking community. And finally, Raziel Zisman is the co-founder and partner of Whittle, Consulting, where he leads the Sustainable Governance Initiative. He's also executive chairman of Alicanto Mining, a private project generating company. So welcome, everybody. Sam, let's start with you, since you're on the front lines at Oceana Gold with mines in the U.S., the Philippines, and um, New Zealand. You, when we talked about this earlier, you said that ESG is really starting to take hold among certain groups of investors, particularly in Europe and the U.K., which seem to be ahead of us. And all of the funds have in-house ESG experts that are looking at all their investments, or they hire independent third-party audits to look at them. Can you talk a little bit about how it's changed since you started Oceana Gold? Thanks so much, Trish. It's great to be here at this, uh, this forum. It seems like a very good event. And yeah, I mean, ESG is definitely very topical. We've heard quite a bit on ESG this year in particular. It seems to be a bit of a buzzword. But it's been around for a while now. But we have seen sort of a paradigm shift in ESG investing over the last two or three years, particularly in the last couple of years. And based on our estimates or our figures, uh, there's about $25 trillion of investments under management globally with investors who consider themselves to be socially responsible investors, SRI. 
But I mean, ESG has been around for a number of years now. It really took off in 2000 with the development of the Global Reporting Initiative Framework, uh, which a lot of companies, including ourselves, use for sustainability reporting. And then it really took off in 2006 when the UN principles for responsible investing was put together and started getting support from investors. I think right now there's about 1,500 investors who are signed up to the UN PRI. And then in the last few years, especially with, uh, obviously with a lot of social media, a lot of emphasis globally on climate change, the focus from the UN on making changes to how corporations and countries are adapting and changing sort of their landscape with respect to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, investors or the underlying investors are now pressuring funds to at least put that as another criteria before they make investment decisions. So a few years ago, we looked at it more as a, a risk management tool. We have a number of global investors, a lot of the large investors, uh, particularly out of London, and we consider London to be the epicenter for ESG. Uh, we see a lot of those investors adding ESG to their criteria. So from our perspective, we were looking at that as a risk management tool to make sure that the good work that we were doing on the ground was being translated to what investors were looking to see in terms of responsible investments. We, we've become more mature. Unfortunately, the industry hasn't become more mature in terms of ESG and reporting and disclosure practices. But we are um, certainly looking at it as an opportunity because of how much money now has gone into ESG investments. So sovereign wealth groups, such as Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, making statements that they don't want to invest in companies that are not responsible. They even said that they won't invest in oil and gas. You know, that's a paradigm shift in how investors are thinking and where they want to deploy their, their funds. Uh, more recently, I met with one of the largest pension funds in Canada. Won't say who, but they basically had a team there, including the responsible investment manager, and they made a statement that they can see in the next little while, they didn't really provide a time frame, they can see themselves investing in companies that have a certain score with the MSCI ESG performance rankings, and that if gold companies, for example, or mining companies were below that threshold, they would not invest in them. And because investors still need to deploy money in, say, gold companies, that money will flow into companies that meet their threshold requirements. And based on what they described, the threshold was going to be set fairly high in terms of the MSCI ESG rankings. So, I mean, that is a paradigm shift. I mean, the companies do need to uh, respond. They need to realize that this change is happening and it's not going away. Mm -hmm. From, based on our perspective, we certainly believe that this is only going to get bigger. Right. Okay, thanks, Sam. Culver, uh, just, when we talked about ESG recently, you expressed a fair bit of skepticism, and you pointed to the Tailings Dam disaster in Brazil, Valley's iron ore mine, which killed 251 people. And you said, you know, initially the share price went down, sure. And you were right, I checked the numbers. The, the day before the breach, Valley was trading at $14.86. At the end of the day, of the day of the breach, it went down to $13.66. And by Monday, it was down again to $11.20. But by mid-March, so basically a month and a half later, it was back up to $13.70 a share. And by mid-July, back up to $14. Where's the disconnect? Thanks, Patricia. 
I think you caught me on a day I was quite pessimistic about things <laughs> and, and saying at the end of the day, we're putting all this effort into it, but geez, uh, Valet's share price, which we're still using as the biggest uh, indicator of their future success is right back basically where they started before this whole thing. And so I'm still a believer. I'll talk about that, but I'm getting a little bit more skeptical. So um, I've been looking deep about where we can find ways to strengthen my belief and maybe belief of the industry. By my very nature, the work we do with the Development Partner Institute, we're really focused on moving the mandate of the industry from an extraction focus to a development focus, that uh, mining will only succeed if we deliver on the expectation of all of our different stakeholders. And unfortunately, the, the, the expectations of our stakeholders continue to increase. So despite all the great improvements being made by the industry, uh, to keep up with regulations, to keep ahead of regulations, that the gap continues to grow, and that's where the, the social license issues come up. So I believe it from the work I do around the world. I also believe from the capital markets perspective, there's tons of research that confirms that companies that score higher on ESG have better long-term success. You know, ROE, return on invested capital, even, even market performance over the long term, they tend to do better. And I'm also a believer that it's still the right thing to do in terms of taking responsibility for our actions and doing what matters. But I'm getting skeptical. You mentioned Valet, that uh, you know they went down 25% and they're right back up where we started. I'm also seeing that I think our industry and investors are, I think they're getting good at punishing the worst, but I'm really having a hard time seeing the carrot and the stick being applied between the mediocre and the great performers. So as long as I'm not the least worst mining company, I'm okay. And now we have the whole plethora of standards coming through. And that's creating a whole cottage industry. And the standards are great because they create a minimum floor for performance. But we all know anyone who's worked in a large corporation or interacted with it, how much of a check the box exercise it really is. You know, we need to call it bullshit on some of these things. Yes, there's a lot of companies that do it and really do it. But for a lot of downstream suppliers who are asking upstream, what's doing, what's happening here, fill out this form. And as long as you don't check anything on the right side, I'm happy. And yes, there's third-party audit coming in there. And, but the costs of all of this are becoming apparent. But are we doing this because we need to be compliant with the letter of the law? Or are we really starting to believe in the spirit of the law and, and the principles behind what we're doing? And we're also starting to see that there's this alphabet soup of standards and people are starting to cherry pick. You know, you ask, well, we're applying these standards that seem to be not as rigorous as the ones over here. And, and in all of that, we're still waiting for the we're peak standards. We're still waiting for the shakeout and the great reconciliation happening about the different standards. But right now, the costs of applying the standards and building a standards regime is becoming apparent. But the benefits of being awesome at it versus just being good enough at it are still uh, way to be seen. The other thing is, at the end of the day, there's this still split we see between, and we say ESG, but uh, from what I see, there's still two big camps. There's the climate change camp, and there's the social and community side camp. And those two are related, but they're not completely related. Uh, there's a council of national chiefs in, in Calgary that are meeting in a few weeks, and it's over 100 First Nations chiefs that are pro-development. Um, that's kind of the awkward truth that doesn't come out in our national conversations and our national elections. How do we reconcile the two things between that? There's a lot of things there that I think we need to kind of reconcile, and it's not black or white, but I am you know, still very very firm believer, and I think these things are going to come together, and, and a few different things. That One is, we know the Business Roundtable came out a couple months ago now and said uh, corporations don't just exist to increase shareholder value like they have been for the last few centuries. They exist to, uh, when they're at their best, all stakeholders matter, including employees, suppliers, communities, as indeed stakeholders. Now, that's a huge shift at the top, and we need to see that trickle down, but directionally, that's monumental to kind of, you think of how we build our capitalist society. But 
the, the bigger issue is that we have all, you know, every one of our uh, mining companies has floors dedicated to measuring our financial performance. And there's gap and there's whole entire industries built on, on accounting principles. But around principles around ESG, we're still looking at what the standards are and what, how do we report on it and how can people evaluate that. And I was really uh, pleased to see the work being done by, around the uh, embankment project for inclusive capitalism. That was EY with 30 other businesses. And there, it was a first major, one of the major efforts to tr start to put measures around innovation, society, environment, governance, so that we have almost a gap for these kind of areas. So I'm, I'm pleased about that. And I also think, I think pressure is going to come from different places. I think standards are, do matter. And I like multi-stakeholder standards like IRMA emerging, that it isn't just top down, they've been built from the bottom up. I also see uh, responsible sourcing. We, do a, we're, we have a whole initiative at DPI in which we're looking at, we're talking to the folks like BMW and Tiffany's and Microsoft and the pressure they can put upstream, not just on fabricators, but all the way up to the mine. And lastly, uh, something that hasn't happened too much in mining yet, but I think is on the horizon, and this is em employee activism. We talk about investor activism, but employee activism is happening. You saw this with Wayfair, the furniture company that went on strike because their furniture was being sent to detention centers on the, on the Mexican border. McKinsey had a huge uproar, and they pulled all their contracts with ICE. And we're seeing Google. You know, those are just three examples that are happening there. What happens when we have a whole generation of millennials, purpose-led millennials, running mining companies mm -hmm. and demanding the mining companies do better, not just because of external stakeholders, but because of internal alignment or lack of alignment with their values? So mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of optimism on the front there. Mm -hmm. But right now, when I'm looking at just pure investor sentiment and where the numbers shake out on the markets, it's not there yet. Miranda, you, uh, you recently joined the Optimize Group, but before that you were an investment banker for 25 years at IBK Capital. I'm interested in your thoughts. You know, you've said before that the large companies, just because they're large and have a big budget, it doesn't mean that they get ESG right. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Right. So um, this morning has been quite interesting, especially George's conversation and presentation about building trust. And I worked for 25 years for a, a private investment bank raising capital for the early stage juniors. So what I like to call the, the, scrappy, the scrappy fundraising uh, to fund exploration to build the next level of companies. So I've been talking about ESG for mid-tiers and majors, but you know, really my work has centered on early stage companies and, and it really doesn't take a lot. I was talking to George and when we talked, Trish, about building trust and building relationships for an early stage company. And we worked years ago, probably a decade ago, with a company in Colombia who, before they even set foot on the property, before they even you know, did any drilling, they spent time with all the local communities. They sat down, they said, these are the three communities that are gonna be impacted within 20, 30 kilometer radius of the work we're gonna be doing. They did a census, they did a health survey, they looked at education, they looked at, at community, what were the drivers of the community, they looked at cultural systems, they looked at belief systems, then they went back and they, and they put together this sort of baseline of activity. And from there, they built their project. So taking time, and it didn't take very long, six to eight months, before they ran out of the gate to start exploration, to bring in teams of people, they spent time with every single member of those communities and the community leaders, you know, the, the mayors, all the actors for each and every one of those communities. So when we went down for a site visit a year into the work with the company, we sat at a lunch with 40 people who are absolutely thrilled with the work that this company had done. And it didn't cost a lot of money. 
It was just careful thought to take a look at what the whole system looked like, what were the pieces of the puzzle they needed to, to fit together in order to be able to make this project work. And yes, it's never a linear straight line. I mean, we all know that from exploration to development to production is chaotic. But the company started production this May, right? So with a target guidance of 40,000 ounces of gold per year. And they made it work. And they were a tiny junior. I mean, at one point, they had $150,000 left in the bank. But they made it work. And, and they built those relationships. And they built trust out of the gate, right? So having those fundamental systems in place from the get-go 100% contributed to their success. Raziel, you've mentioned in the past that a lot of these mining companies have to go to places where there's no infrastructure, virtually no infrastructure, and that you've suggested that one way of getting around that in, in improving ESG is by doing partnerships with other companies in other industries like construction or agribusiness or telecoms, and that might help improve ESG. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Good morning. Great to be here. It's a great forum. Mining is... Uh, there are many types of mining companies. The ones at Miranda, very tiny companies, very limited budgets, and you have the valleys and the barracks of the world. So you're comparing a back-of-the-wood small Cessna copycat with Boeing. But we face tremendous challenges. Number one, everybody loves to hate mining. So that's something that we need to advance as a matter of course. Secondly, to the point, when in large-scale mining in particular, when you develop a large mine, you go to a remote area and you develop a Sudbury, and 100 years later you have a whole economy built around it, mining companies need to try to capture some of that value. Put, if we turn it upside down, the percentage of mining that mining represents in Mexico is 3 to 4% of GDP in Mexico. Mexico is a large mining jurisdiction. So if you were to look at a region and do mining as, as incidental, looking at with, using uh, Calvir's 100-year uh, uh, vision, and you walk it back to today, what could you do as a business to capture value going forward. And the G part in ESG, I mean, governments also need to participate. The way I put it when I talk to CEOs is that you will go to a country, you say, I want to develop this area, the government will tap you on the shoulder and say, thank you very much, go ahead, and build the roads, build the schools, build the hospitals, and we'll come and tax you. And you're on your own, and everybody sort of points the arrows at yourself. Maybe there's a way for us as an industry to come in and sit down with this large vision and companies like Ivanhoe, in which have terrific deposits in, in South Africa and in, in the Congo and the DRC, they can look at that long-term vision and try to communicate. The other challenge that we face in our industry, if you're a single mine company, your mining will be gone in 15, 20 years. I mean, what impact can you have? What ESG can you do in that sense? If you develop a whole district, it's a different perspective. If you have a long-running mine, technology is going to change. You're going you're gonna to be mining with a horse buggy when the electric car comes in, literally, and uh, there are technologies that are revolutionizing the industry. What does all that mean to us is we need to participate in fora like this and discuss it openly. I, I don't know how many members of government are here. Can you raise your hands? Regulators? My point. How many people from the Ministry of the Environment, from communities? We need to talk. All those people have to be brought into the picture together. And I don't like the term CSR. CSR is a way of sprinkling solutions, something you know, sort of entrepreneurial, right? You, want, you don't want problems, that's why you do the CSR. That is the wrong way of looking at things. But to bring people in and to solve the issue that everybody hates mining, we need to educate everybody. People have to come in and understand. And we are really in fairly primitive times. The other thing that I hear quite often now, companies will say, you know what, between open pit and, and underground, we're going to 
forego the open pit. We're going to go straight to underground. Because we're not, we don't want to bury the problems, but we don't want our problems to be sh uh, shown up. That may not be the right approach. The other uh, example, that, and with that, with that I'll sort of wrap up what I'm saying, drones in our industry are being used. But drones are being used very intensely in agriculture now. It's lots of, in terms of hectares around the world, how much of that data being gathered by drones can be applied to the mining sector in terms of using hyperspectral sensors as all those drones fly all over the place to feed out to our industry? If we go back 20 years and come back to today, how primitive are we in terms of the things that we'll be doing as a matter of course 20 years from now? Claudia? You come from it from the academic side of things at Schulich. Um, what are some of the discussions that are going on at Schulich about ESG, and can you give us some examples of the research you're doing? Sure. So thanks, first of all, for the invitation. Great to be here. Um, so I want to start off by, um, you know, sharing a little bit of an insight into what we see with our students. So being, you know, at the forefront of working with future leaders in the industry. And then I wanted to finish by giving some recommendations on hopefully things that could, from a board perspective, help us address some of the concerns that we've heard in particular from, from Colvier. So just to start things off, I think till now we've seen ESG topics, maybe not quite as the wave that George referred to earlier on, but more as a slow rising of the sea levels. What we will be seeing, though, is a tsunami. And uh, just to give you a couple of examples, we've only been around for eight years a program, so we are babies on the academic front. But what we've seen over those eight years is a tremendous increase in the questions that we get from our students around ESG, the interest, the importance that they're placing on ESG, and the questions around shareholder value versus stakeholder value and inclusion of all stakeholders in business in general, in particular in mining. Now, if we look at some research, generational research, what we've seen in the past is that generations like millennials that have focused a lot on innovation and generating ideas are typically followed by generations that do. So now imagine all the great ideas and all the things that we're hearing about and the change they've already brought us and imagine now things actually get done. That's going to bring a big change. That will be the tsunami and the tsunami will be people change, not technological change. So that just as an introduction to, you know, we do need to be ready. Um, and I think based on our research and our conversations, there's a number of things that we can already do, especially on a board level, to really get our organizations, our mining industry ready to really, you know, serve that wave, that tsunami wave that we're expecting. So the first one that I wanted to share is getting involved. So if you're a board member, get involved. Get involved in strategy discussions. What we're currently seeing is, and I do have some numbers here, only about 20% of boards are actually actively involved in shaping strategy. Now, take 20%, and now how much of that time is actually spent on discussing ESG as something that is important to our strategy? So that doesn't leave us with a lot of wiggle room, with a lot of discussion of ESG as something that is integrated. We've heard a lot about E, S, and G being separate, but that's also separate from strategy. So using an integrated approach is something that will really change mindsets there, and that has to be demanded and brought forward by board members. In our program with our students, what we do is we have a, our own framework. We call it this uh, GMM strategy framework, and it really is focused on um, teaching these future leaders to think about sustainability as success of a company that is really dependent on making choices that create and distribute wealth to all stakeholders and looking at it as an integrated 
integrated opportunity. So what can we particularly do on that front? We've heard a lot from board members in the past. They don't actually get a chance to contribute to uh, agendas when it comes to board agendas, right? So we join a board, you are the new one on the board, and it's, well, we've done this a couple of times before. This is how we've always done it. First point, second point, third point. But at the end of the day, unless we demand and make time for these conversations around ESG, that won't change and won't bring us any forward to that. Um, my second point is really get out there. We've already heard about site visits. We've heard about getting engaged from a leadership and management perspective. But that lives at the top. And at the end of the day, boards are often seen as the connection to shareholders. So then if we are getting those pressures and we're expecting even more pressures around ESG to come forward from our shareholder base, then as board members, we need to be out there, leave the boardroom, spend more time outside of the boardroom. We are seeing an increasing trend in that across industries. About 48% nowadays are spent outside of the boardroom for board members. But for us in mining, what that really means is site visits. And who do we talk to when we go to site? We talk to operational people. We talk to our technical people. We don't go and spend time talking to other stakeholders. Employees who are more and more active, communities who are more and more active, potentially suppliers. We do see that a lot in other industries like manufacturing or retailing. And actually one notable example of doing something like that is having an advisory board, which Rio Tinto recently restructured and really started that, giving that more importance. So that is one way of really engaging with other stakeholders. And the last point that I wanted to make is also leading by values. So again, leadership starts at the top, and it's about trust building. We've heard a lot about that today. But at the end of the day, if the board doesn't emphasize that, then you know we're losing that opportunity to build trust with stakeholders, but also with our shareholders. We are seeing a trend in the board representing broader stakeholders. You've referred to the Business Council already. In Canada, the official you know, line is that you're responsible for the best interest of the organization. And that is being interpreted in a broader sense, representing employees and a broader set of stakeholders. So that means that we are accountable and we need to hold ourselves accountable. That includes disclosing information, disclosing information that is valuable to our stakeholders. One example that I want to share here, we hold an annual case competition at the university that is focused on mining and sustainability. And we typically in, include a lot of shareholders and a lot of investors and mining companies as judges for our students to present to. And one year, uh, something that really burned itself into my memory is we had this young student show up, a female student about my height. I'm, I'm really short when I'm standing, and she had printed out all of the information that you could find on the website of our case company that year, which was actually known to be a mining company that had excellent disclosure for shareholders and stakeholders. And the pile was, you know, higher than she herself in height. It was incredible. And she said, well, I've read all of this, and I have no idea what this company is doing on ESG. So if that is the disclosure that we're currently providing, even if we're known as a company that is providing excellent disclosure, then we're losing the future generation that is looking for that information, and they will become at one point the sources of our financing. So we do need to address that. Before I turn it over to questions from the audience, we have about 10 minutes left. I was wondering if any of you would like to pick up on themes that have been discussed so far. 
just free for all. Just one quick uh, addition. Um, I talk about education, and to Claudia's point, I have a, a daughter who's in first year engineering, and she has grown up in a house with me always working in mining. And as she has, <laughs> so fingers crossed, she'll be a mining engineer. But as she has gone through high school, each and every step of the way, she would sit me down and ask me very pointed, direct questions about what are you doing? What is this mining? What are you doing to the planet? What do you talk? Do you talk to people? Do you talk to communities? So, so all for for a now 17 year old who is entering a different phase of her life to talk about accountability because she and her they're the next generation. They're the ones going to be developing these projects. They're the ones who are going to be financing these projects. And I had to take a step back and sit down and actually walk her through it that we weren't destroying the planet because as George you know the the vision we get is that that we are not good citizens of the earth where we you know mining is a great business and we need to just continue to build a really good business mm. um, so she has educated me over the last several years as she has moved on thank you Miranda I want to make a point my background is a securities lawyer I've done a lot of work in the U.S. and here. It always fascinated me. We worked very hard as lawyers preparing prospectuses that only the accountants and the lawyers read. And the whole idea of disclosure is to educate the public so they make informed decisions. Your point brought it brilliantly to mind. Trust. The public and large doesn't trust us to deliver information. They just don't. So it doesn't matter how much information we put out or put in or projects we generate or standards we create and acronym after acronym, they just don't believe us. So we need to break that. And keep it simple is a very important thing. And values is everything. I mean, it's uh, Kurifani. It talks about you have to talk it, walk it, do it, and continue doing it. And it is, unfortunately, we live in a world where you are, uh, without mentioning companies, there's a company that is suffering now because there's a local corrupt government. I went through all that stuff in Colombia. I'm going through it now as well. If the government is corrupt, there's not much you can do. Small-scale miners, unfortunately, they use very primitive technology in a dishwasher is more modern than the technology small artisanal miners use. Why? But they use mercury because they need to earn a living. But those usages, they all taint us. On the other scale, Boeing makes aircraft. They're the best company in the world. Look what happened with the latest, the, the 737 Maxi. How could they? They never expected, they never dreamt that all those planes would be grounded. Who knows until when? And now they have the, the other issue they had with the, the wing route. So the point being, how do we get to earn trust? So when people look at a mining company, they feel comfortable in the same way they feel comfortable with, uh, with an Apple computer, for example, that Apple is Apple. There's a saying, if I have to tell you I'm a gentleman, I'm probably not a gentleman, <laughs> right? <laughs> If I have to keep telling you what a great guy I am, there's some issues there. And if my girlfriend is thinking about a long-term relationship with me and she goes and hangs out with all of my friends, and she says, hey, what do you think of that Clover guy? And they're all like, mm, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get, you know, she's, those can be some signals. So what happens when we go out there, we have great disclosure, we have great ads, campaigns, everybody's got a great corporate video. Where are our friends, right? Where are the companies, where are the stakeholders standing up and saying, this mine is doing the right thing, we support it. And of course, we can find individuals, we can find one-offs, but they're one-offs. So we as an industry, when we kind of bang the table, and mine executives love banging the table, we're just not telling our story properly. Let's throw more money at an ad campaign. And in many countries where that's the CEO conversation goes on, we're losing the PR war. Well, because you're the one giving the messaging. So the question then comes is why aren't our friends speaking up? And if our closest friends, the folks that are supposed to be getting all the benefits of mining, 
are not willing to stand up for us, then the question is, are we really delivering on the benefits to them? So the question of trust is trust, you don't buy trust, you earn trust. And I have little kids, the best thing I say, the best way to make a friend is be a friend. You do something for somebody else, of course they're gonna stick up for you, you have to extend it. So there's a much more kind of existential question here is why are we always alone in these situations? You know, something happens to the apples of the world, you mentioned them, there's, there's a whole cavalcade of supporters, there's a whole ecosystem around them, yet for us we're kind of seen at the front line of, of uh, having to fight these battles by ourselves. Sam, did you wanna say something? Yeah, so I, I agree with what you said, well, what, basically what everyone's been saying here, and I think you said a key point here, Claudia, in terms of disclosure practices. You know, mining companies, you know, there are some very good ones who have good disclosure practices, but even some of the best ones, even despite those disclosure practices, don't have the friends that you've mentioned as well, too. I think the industry hasn't banded together. It's just been a bunch of individual companies who do good things, not everybody, but I'd say a lot of the companies in our industry do good things. You know, they take communities out of poverty, they build the infrastructure, they make those sorts of investments, they've got very strong social license, they've got very good relationships with communities, their stakeholders, with government, with their shareholders, but they're doing it sort of isolated from everybody else. You know, they're, they're not banding together as an industry, a group of companies, all like-minded, discussing the issues, you know, the really real critical issues, not just the ones that are important to individual companies, but really the critical issues for the industry. Because mining does a lot, right? It's not the sexiest industry out there. You know, you've mentioned Apple and Google. You know, a lot of people here probably have iPhones or, or Samsungs, and people love being on their smartphones, but they don't actually know where that smartphone came from. They don't know that a lot of the minerals were in the ground that mining companies have dug up, hopefully in a responsible way, to come up with the products that we use today. So I think there's definitely a miseducation out there, and we are losing the PR battle, and we have been for a number of years. But part of it, and I hate saying this, but part of it has to do with fake news as well, too. There are a lot of groups out there, a lot of groups that are a lot of people invest in in terms of um, NGOs, put money in, don donations in, and they have their own sort of agendas. They're, they've got agendas that are not friendly to mining, and they have no accountability like corporations do, accountable to their shareholders and other stakeholders. And so when you don't have accountability, you basically put out their misinformation. And again, we as an industry haven't done a good job to sort of counteract that misinformation and really put out the good stuff that we are doing, recognizing that the industry does have challenges, but that's the opportunity for us as an industry to improve on. Just uh, wanted to add a couple of words on, again, going back to values and, and accountability. I think, you know, if you look at any mining company website, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but you look at their statements around vision, mission, and values, and they're all pretty much the same. So, you know, these statements don't really give you an idea of what that company is all about and what is valued in that company. And that makes it really hard to communicate what we're doing because we present ourselves as being all the same. And then to just extrapolate that even more, when you then dig deeper, and you know, I'm putting my consultant hat on for a moment, but often you see these values being determined by other consultants. <laughs> so they're not being lived. Values don't exist in isolation for an organization. They are personal. So unless we make them personal and find a way to not only hold leadership accountable to those values and the decisions they make based on those values and, and do the same for boards, they don't mean anything. And then, you know, students go out there and they assess these statements and we ask them, you know, what do you think about the strategy and the values of this organization? Are they aligned? They go out there and say, I don't know. I, can't, I don't have enough information. And yes, maybe they are in some cases, but why did they 
do X and why do they not care about this, right? So they see all of these contradicting pieces of information that are not giving them any access point into understanding what the industry is all about. But we're also bombarded with social media, right? I mean, there's so much, again, information, misinformation out there. Um, one thing that we talk about internally is that you had just mentioned, you know, why do they do X but not Y? We have to do an assessment of who our stakeholders are. And it's not just shareholders, right? It's government, it's communities, it's, it's a number of different stakeholders. And then we go through a materiality assessment to see what is important to those stakeholders and including employees as well too. And based on what we come up with is that's what we sort of align our ESG programs and policies uh, towards. It's what our stakeholders want, not just because somebody says it's a good idea that we should report to the CDP, right? Because that may not be important to our stakeholders. It might be important to their stakeholders, but not ours. So you have to do the work. You can't just greenwash. You can't just say, I've got a sustainability report and tick off a box. You'd really have to go through that exercise. And it does require board management and employees uh, from the organization to be engaged and, and not just do it for the sake of doing it, but do it because it's the right thing to do and really embrace it as an organization. Okay, that's wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to the panel. I would like to thank you once again for listening to the Northern Miner podcast. We hope you enjoyed that very interesting, cutting-edge discussion on ESG at the Northern Miners Progressive Mind Forum. If you want to support the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Also, you can just email this to your friends. Again, students, this is a very real-world application of a lot of the theory that you learn in university. So this is a lot of the, you know, you can study geology, and then, then you're having to deal with stuff like politics and ESG, so it can be very useful just to see what it's like once you leave university. So again, feel free to share this with your friends. We thank you for listening each and every week, and until next week, take care.